With that, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1? Genesis 1, I was so excited that we sang this hymn. I didn't ask Darren about this, but I, I suspected he would. But we sang the 1901 hymn by Maltby Babcock, This Is My Father's World. And it has this beautiful first verse, This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. His hand, the wonders wrought. And it's a hymn that we use to sing and celebrate God's creation, rightly recognizing that all the beauty of our world is because of our creator God. But if you have breath in your body and a heartbeat, you're aware that in our world there's a growing sense of desperation phrased as the stereotype Desperation to save the planet. The concern being global warming and what the resulting changes on Earth could be. And so I'd like to address this as the next question in our summer series, Biblical Answers to Difficult Questions. And our question today is, can we save the planet from climate change? This is the first, likely the last time I will ever preach on this. So grab it today because this is it. Because the question I have to ask myself is, why is this worth taking a Sunday to talk about when instead we could be considering the glories of the death and the resurrection of Christ, the wonders of the Trinity, the delights of the Psalms? In the midst of a day in which those things are desperately needed, why does it matter that I understand this issue? Isn't climate change just one big myth anyway? Well, this is an important issue because now, even within the walls of the Church of Jesus Christ, a growing fear has been perpetuated, a fear that our world might be radically altered. This is a key issue because it, it feeds ungodly, unchristian-like fear. I now, as a pastor, have young couples coming to me before they get married, or shortly after getting married, saying, we're hesitant to have children because this world is falling apart. And so it's a fear that's beginning to impact how we behave. This is also an important issue because it directly challenges our belief that the worldview of the, script, of the Christian is to be determined by the scriptures alone. That only scripture is the ultimate source of perfect truth from God. Now, if you've followed this issue of global warming or, or climate change at all, you've probably noticed a trend. And that trend is that even among conservative people, the narrative about climate change has shifted. It's shifted from this is all fake, it's all a conspiracy, to somewhat now of a general acknowledgement of the problem of climate change. And so this issue has the potentially that needlessly cause fear because there is in the world, even among scientists who are Christians, that climate change is a reality. So how do we deal with that? And of course, like all corrupt leadership, when there's any evidence of this reality at all, government leaders press hard and without stopping to use the issue of climate change to do what governments always do, and that is to gain tighter controls over people, to inflate the seriousness of the issue, to literally preach that climate change is needed to, or, or the laws about climate change are needed to, to save the world, that the government 
that the average government worker graduates from college with a C average. We need them to change and save the world. And so, again, just like Germany in the decade before World War II, the constantly heard message of doom and fear causes people to give in to totalitarian control, supposedly for the greater good. That's what they always say. We're doing this for everybody's benefit. And the threat of climate change continues to be one of the greatest excuses that those in power use to take away our God-given freedoms. Now, I will say this up front. Our rightful pushback against the climate change narrative has sometimes gone too far to the point of ignoring God's mandate to mankind to have dominion and stewardship over the earth. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, our theology of the coming judgment of the earth might lead us to have the wrong attitude that it's okay to abuse and mangle the earth. We don't worship at the altar of radical environmentalism, but neither do we take for granted the fact that this is my father's world. No believer in Christ thinks it's a great idea to breathe gray, polluted, smoggy air. We have common sense given to us by God. We know when the use of the earth becomes the abuse of the earth. We understand that. We are stewards. We are caretakers, and that has been the case since the Garden of Eden. But neither are we to allow the widespread fear used as an excuse for totalitarian non-common-sense restrictive laws to be passed. We're not to allow this sort of fear-mongering to impact our trust in the Lord one bit. The world has nothing to speak to our faith. There's no input from the world that's useful at all. Zero. None. It only corrupts us. So how do we think about this issue then? Because it's not a completely made-up issue. That's one of the reasons we see the narrative changing and and broader acceptance of the issue of climate change. People are realizing that this issue is not as simple or as straightforward as maybe previously was thought. Climate change is a complex issue. And there are some changes that are being observed objectively and correctly. People are realizing that not, not all climate change reports are false. Now, I'll give you two facts just very briefly. Fact number one verifiably, the Earth's average annual temperature is increasing. That's verifiable. From 1980 to 2010, the temperature rose a little more than one degree Fahrenheit. Now, of course, we would also put in there that from 1880 to 1910, 100 years earlier, the average temperature fell by almost a degree, and we understand that. But it is a fact. Temperatures are going up. The second fact, verifiably, this trend is very correlated with, it's very much associated with increased carbon dioxide emissions. That's a word I will never again say preaching in a sermon. Those are verifiable facts. They have nothing to do with emotion. They have nothing to do with political affiliation. They have nothing to do with spiritual belief. They're just facts. So what do we do with this? Well, because this issue can feed ungodly fear, We want to look at truth instead. Let's just look at truth. And I'd like to give you this morning four truths about God that give us total peace. Four truths about God. And we're going to get into into the weeds on some issues here. But I wanted to, at at the top of the mountain here, just keep it very simple. Four truths about God. The first truth, God's creation. God's creation is the first truth. 
Now, to consider God's creation and why this is such a major issue concerning climate change, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, and we have to make certain that we understand creation as God intended us to understand it. And this is going to feel like a detour for a few minutes. I promise that this will have a point in just a little bit, but this is absolutely vital as we're going to see. So how did God intend us to understand creation? Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. There's not a lot of mystery here. The language is very straightforward. A seven-year-old could read this and give you an accurate interpretation of what's going on here. You could ask a seven-year-old, who made everything? God did. How long did it take? Well, there was one day that it started everything. What did he make first? Light. A seven-year-old can figure this out. And yet, going all the way back to the mid-1800s and then ramping up in the last about four decades Even many respected Bible scholars have chosen to reinterpret Genesis 1 in light of so-called scientific advances that say now that the earth is 4.54 billion years old. And so we're faced with the question, when God said day, did he mean a literal 24-hour day or did he mean long ages of millions of years that science supposedly tells us? Is day really a metaphor for millions of years? This is an important question. Because if day means millions of years, then we have a very, very old earth, 4.5 million years or billion years or so. But if day means day, then we have a very young earth between six and 10,000 years old. Now, let's get back to some basics. Again, we're on a detour for a bit here. I want to give you seven arguments for God creating in six literal 24-hour days, plus a day of God ceasing from his work. So we'll have uh, one argument for every day of creation. How about that? There are many, many more. I only have time to do these seven, and we'll be brief. The first argument we'll call the vocabulary precision argument. The vocabulary precision argument. The Bible is very precise about creation. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. I don't know how much clearer he could be at a kindergarten level to say, this is a day, it has the daytime part, it has the nighttime part. It's a day. A day is defined by the passage of the sun. One period of light and one period of darkness. In Exodus 20, beginning in verse 9, The Sabbath law is based on creation, for in six days God made everything. The Hebrew word for day, used with this expression morning and evening or evening and morning, happens 38 times. The Hebrew word for day happens with a modifier 359 times, like the eighth day or the seventh day. It happens as a plural, 845 times. In all of those, 1,242 times, it always means a 24-hour period every time. But wait, there's 1,758 other times that word is used. And in all of those other 1,758 times, it never one time speaks of a long age or eon that could be interpreted as millions of years. Never. 
Sometimes the word is used to speak of a general period of time, the day of trouble or the day of the Lord, but that just means a general period of time. The only reason to think of day as actually being millions of years is to accommodate ridiculous long periods required to consider evolution. Nobody's ever observed evolution, so they have to say, well, it took millions and billions of years because we haven't ever seen it, so we have to say something ridiculous. So that's the the vocabulary precision argument. How about the faith test argument? The faith test argument. Genesis 1-1 is in your face. It absolutely requires the reader to make a choice immediately. It requires the reader to choose to believe these words or to disbelieve them. And where does it place God? At the beginning. And this is very important. Not at the beginning of a process, but at the beginning of an event. There's a big difference between those two. A six-day creation event that would serve as the pattern for our lives. Even today, our week Monday through Sunday still shouts a six-day creation, doesn't it? Or more precisely, uh, Sunday through, through Saturday. It shouts a six-day creation. You know what we're still baffled by? A seven-day week doesn't fit into anything. It doesn't fit in the lunar cycles. It doesn't fit into a solar cycle. We have to try to, to, to do leap years and throughout thousands of years, every culture has tried to figure out how to make adjustments for time because our seven-day week, which we've had since creation, doesn't fit exactly. Why is that? Because it tells us that this was artificially placed here by God. We live a seven-day week because God made everything in six days and rested on the seventh. And we're reminded of that every single day. Genesis 1-1 is in your face. Either you believe this or not. Here's a third argument. We'll call this one the ridiculous faith argument. The ridiculous faith argument. The idea of adaptive evolution of a lower life form becoming a higher life form, that your great-grandfather was actually an orangutan and so forth, it's never been observed historically. It's never been observed scientifically. And so the belief in millions and millions and billions of years is necessary to promulgate evolution because that's the only way that, that they say it could be possible. The whole idea of evolution is based on presuppositions and conjecture that brings evolution and millions of years into the realm of simply being something believed by faith. But it's a faith with zero evidence whatsoever. We have faith, don't we? We have faith in God. But we have tremendous evidence for our faith. Psalm 119, Psalm 19 rather, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. We see evidence of God everywhere. In fact, the Bible says that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. You have to be an idiot to not think there's a God. Creation is clearly designed and must therefore have a designer. Our faith is based in evidence. Evolution in millions and millions of years is is a faith that is based in nothing. Here's a fourth argument. We'll call this the motivated worship argument. The motivated worship argument. Creation is one of our greatest motivators to worship the creator. In fact, I can prove this going all the way to the end of the Bible. Revelation 14 in verse 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. This is during the great tribulation to every nation and tribe and language and people. Listen to this. And he, that is the angel, said with a loud voice, Fear God. 
and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. You see, an old earth places God on the sidelines of creation at best in a process that, that he may or may not have started, but he certainly wasn't vitally involved in. And therefore, he's not fully the creator. And therefore, Revelation 14, 6 and 7 makes no sense. We worship God, first and foremost, because he is the creator. How about this one? The glory of Christ argument. The glory of Christ argument. Creation put on display the glory and power of Christ through whom God created all things. John 1, 3 says of Christ that all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 14, just 11 verses later, says that Jesus, the word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, why is that important? John chapter 1 connects the glory of Christ, yes, to his appearing in the flesh, but it connects the glory of Christ to the fact of him being the creator. And when you deny biblical creation, you deny Christ's inherent right to glory. If God took a back seat and had to rely on millions of years for creation, then the glory of Christ is diminished. How about this one? The total authority argument. The total authority argument. Either the Bible is authoritative or it's not. It claims to be completely inerrant. If it's not inerrant, then the Bible is lying about itself, and it claims to be completely authoritative. But what happens when you take any other source of authority to apply it to the Bible? When other sources of authority like pseudoscience are applied, and I say pseudoscience because true science actually observes phenomenon and no one observed creation, right? No one was there except the angels. When other sources are considered authoritative, what have you done? You have actually placed yourself as a judge over scripture. I have sitting on my shelf commentaries and theologies by wonderful men of God. And yet when they get to Genesis 1, use phrases like, it seems that science has shown us that the days in Genesis 1 are actually long ages. You just punted the scriptural authority in favor of some guy who made something up 150 years ago. In the past decades, going all the way back to the mid-1850s, theologians have fallen all over themselves trying to make scientists happy. That is nothing more than idolatry. This is my favorite argument, the seventh argument. I call this one, and this is a theologically technical term, the Jesus said so argument. <laughs> the Jesus said so argument. Jesus said in John five forty six, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, when he says, if you believe Moses, he's speaking specifically of the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Moses wrote Genesis. And by the way, Jesus, when he references events in Genesis, always speaks of them as historic facts. He speaks factually of Adam and Eve, of Cain and Abel, of Noah and the flood, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Never once does Jesus ever allegorize any events in Genesis or anywhere else in the Old Testament for that matter. Why would he be the greatest authority about what happened in Genesis 1.1? Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created. He's the only one who is there. 
So of course he's the greatest authority. And I know that it's tempting to say yes, but what about science? What about science? Thankfully, the last couple years of COVID have kind of erased a lot of our faith in science, and that's wonderful. But the belief in millions of years and macro evolution, adaptive evolution, is not science. It's never been observed. One author wrote, we don't even know who killed John F. Kennedy 50 years ago. How are we going to know what happened 4.5 billion years ago? This is not science. It's a belief system. It's a worldview. It's a religion. It's a religion that is an attempt to rid humanity of a creator. Okay, that's the detour. I want you to keep the fact of our sole authority, Scripture, clearly teaching a young earth six literal days of creation and a day of ceasing creating as a model for our lives even for today. Keep that clear in your mind. Now we get back to climate change. Yes, people are realizing that the issue is not as simple or straightforward as previously thought. There are some changes being observed objectively and correctly. People are realizing that not all climate change reports are false. But that's not the real problem. The issue is that unbelievers observing climate change, climate change trends, they don't have the right worldview to interpret what they're observing. And because they have the wrong worldview, they've come to the conclusion that climate change is moving us closer to the end of the world. And that's what prompts government overreach and ridiculous and non-common-sense measures to try to stop what they view as a catastrophic, catastrophic event from happening. Now, what do we mean by the wrong worldview being the reason people misinterpret climate change? Scientists who study chemical signatures in rocks generally agree that the Earth in the past has actually been even warmer on average than it is right now. That something happened on this earth during this event that was even where the earth was even warmer. Here's the terrible thing that happened. And scientists agree on this. The terrible thing that happened is that life on earth flourished and was lush and green and beautiful. That's what happened. In fact, scientists have named this verifiable event the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. And there's general agreement and acknowledgement that this slight warming of the earth, even to higher temperatures than today, had a profoundly positive impact on the earth. Scientists generally accept that global warming has happened before. And yet the scientific community in general is panicked today, and they're misleading government officials and agencies to panic. And this panic, as it always does, leads to totalitarianism. It often leads to misguided and nonsense attempts to try to control the rise in temperature because you didn't drive quite as far today. Since apparently every piece of ice on earth is going to melt and flood our shores and will be baked in non-livable conditions... And I know we live in Bakersfield. Well, we've been like that for years. We don't, we're fine with that. But why are scientists panicked about the warming of the earth when the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum shows that the last time the earth warmed, it created a bursting forth of new life and lush conditions on earth? It's the issue of worldview, of an inability to properly interpret what they're seeing because their blind faith belief system in something that's untrue, the belief that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. 
You see, for conventional scientists, the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum event took millions of years to occur. While the current rise in temperatures worldwide has happened over the course of a few decades. And so conventional science is terrified because for them, a rise in temperature that supposedly took millions of years the last time is now happening in decades. It's going to have a catastrophic impact on nature because temperatures seem to be spiraling out of control millions of times faster than temperature changes in the past. But if you simply take God at his word that he made the creation in six literal days. Our earth is not billions of years old. It's a few thousand years old. And the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum happened over the course of a few decades, just like it is now. The current trend has happened before, and it actually resulted in an improvement in life on earth. The current trend is not going to result in the obliteration of life on earth. So God's creation gives us total peace. Let me give you another truth about God that gives us total peace, God's character. God's character. Turn with me just a few pages to Genesis 9. We'll see God's character in Genesis 9. You know this story. God saw that every inclination of the heart of mankind was sinful and rebellious, so he chose to restart with one man and his family. This man, Noah, is called in the New Testament a preacher of righteousness, God commanded Noah to build an ark because a coming judgment of flood was coming, was on its way. But Noah was called to preach to his neighbors that apparently he was offering seats on the ark to anyone who would repent and believe that God was going to judge. But the New Testament confirms that the earth's thinking was, well, it's never happened before, so it'll never happen And so God wiped out the earth with a worldwide flood. Noah and his family were on the ark for a full year before the earth dried out. Every single animal, every single human not on the ark was long dead. The climate of the earth now would be radically changed because of the breaking apart of the cisterns of the earth and the falling down of the water that had previously protected the earth from the worst effects of the sun. A a canopy or protection of some sort made of water. Genesis 1-6 confirms this. And now suddenly, where the climate of the earth had been temperate all around, all over the world, water was freezing everywhere. Right after the flood, massive glaciers were forming. Continents had shifted. And now most of the earth was underwater or ice. Ice that to this day is still melting. Everybody says, oh, the glaciers are melting. Have it ever occurred to you that glaciers are abnormal? Parts of the earth are not meant to be frozen over. They're meant to be lived on. Weather patterns would change now. Tornadoes, hurricanes, ice storms. Some parts of the earth frozen solid and other parts of the earth almost too hot to live in. And that's just 30% of the world. The other 70% is underwater. That wasn't how it was meant to be. Now, Noah and his family get off the ark and they observe this phenomenon. This would naturally cause some alarm. And God graciously made certain that Noah knew this was a one-time event. God made a covenant with Noah. Genesis 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, 
It is for the be- every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you, between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God made a covenant with Noah and with the earth. Then never again would he destroy the earth with a flood like the worldwide flood of Noah. And he decreed that when the rainbow appears, verse 15 says that he will remember his covenant. And now it's not that God might forget. What this issue is, is that it's a comfort to mankind that every time you see a rainbow, that tells you God is still remembering this covenant with Noah. God is still keeping his promise. Now, what does the Noahic covenant have to do with the question, can I save the planet from climate change? Two things. First of all, God promised there will be a livable earth until his redemptive plan is completed. He's already promised that. And second, climate change has long been speculated by the panicked scientific crowd to make it possible for our seasons as we know them to be eradicated. That summer would dominate the year to a destructive level. Now, I did check the weather, and I know that in Bakersfield, California, today is the highest temperature day of the year. 110 degrees is coming down the road. And so preaching against global warming today seems a little bit silly. Because for us, we already know that it seems to live in summer forever. We understand that. But I want you to look at one of God's promises as part of his covenant with the earth made to earth's representative Noah. Look back at chapter 8, verse 22, the last verse of Genesis 8. This is part of the covenant. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So you can ask yourself a simple question. Is the earth still here? Yes. Then the seasons are still here. And they always will be. This means that global warming will not and cannot have that devastating effect that's so gloomily predicted. Now, just to make sure that we are comforted and that we are very clear with the Lord, God has given the same promise elsewhere in Scripture. I won't have you turn to these passages, but uh, most of them are in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 5, 22, God says, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I placed the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. Oh, so much for the glaciers melting and flooding the whole world. That's not going to happen. Jeremiah 5.24, two verses later, they do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, there's the seasons, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Jeremiah 33.20, God says that he'll break his covenant with King David, that he's going to break his covenant with King David if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time. In other words, verse 21 of Jeremiah 33, the Davidic covenant is forever because day and night are forever. Jeremiah 33, 25, God says that he will, he will not restore Israel if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth. And God says that the restoration of Israel is just as certain as the continuation of what he calls the fixed order of heaven and earth. 
Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37, which is uh, uh, part of the new covenant, coming new covenant. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. By the way, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be explored, just told us that God says science will never tell you everything. Never. This is connected to the coming new covenant in Christ. Now, I read all of that to you going all the way back to Genesis 8 and then all those chapters in Jeremiah to show you something. The created order as it is now, our livable planet is as certain as the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant because God connects those promises all together with creation. In other words, if creation's going away, then so is the Noahic covenant. And if the Noahic covenant's going away, then so is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant says that a messianic king from God, descended from David in human form, will come to the earth and rule here forever. If the Davidic covenant is gone, then Christ isn't coming. And the new covenant, if, the, if Christ isn't coming, then the new covenant doesn't matter anyway. You see how God has tied his promise to keep creation intact to all of his redemptive plan. That's a pretty solid promise. So God's creation gives us total peace. God's character gives us total peace. Here's a third truth that gives us total peace. God's curse. God's curse. Let's go to the New Testament now, the Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8... The verse 19, God's creation, God's character. Now we'll look at the, the, the truth of God's curse. Romans 8, familiar passage to you, verse 19. Romans 8, verse 19, and I'll just read it and then we'll make a couple of observations. Romans 8, verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing. And I'll stop right there for a moment. The Apostle Paul personifies creation, like creation is a person that's waiting for something. It's just a literary technique. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Verse 19, there is this eager longing of creation. This is a specific Greek word. It means to stand on your tiptoes and to look for something and to, to look ahead. It's like a, a child that, that is one inch shorter than your kitchen counter, and he thinks there's cookies there. And so he's, he's inching up, trying to look and see. That's creation's eager longing, looking ahead. Jews knew and fully believed that God had already promised a renewed creation. Isaiah 65, he promised a new heaven and a new earth. A time when all pain, all anguish, all sorrow, all sadness of every kind would end. 
Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The fall of man into sin caused the creation to be subjected to death and decay like mankind. No part of nature now exists the way it originally did, the way it was originally intended by God. Now we have death. Now we have weeds. We have poisonous plants. We have thorns. We have devastating cataclysms. Even in the fall, when, when you might see some trees with the beautiful colors on them, do you realize why the leaves have color? Because they're dying. And it's not natural. To be clear, God himself subjected the creation to this consequence of sin. The problem with our earth is not global warming. The problem with our earth is sin. And ironically here, Paul personifies creation and makes certain to say it's not creation's fault, it's mankind's fault. No amount of human intervention can stem the tide of sin. And the solution to sin is not even well-intentioned government programs or environmental projects. The solution to sin is God. And in the redemptive plan of God, did you see what the creation is waiting for? The revealing of the sons of God. All those who would receive Christ Jesus by faith to be their Savior, being brought into the kingdom, and for this age of sin and decay to finally come to an end. You want to end global warming? Romans 8 says that the solution is the gospel. To bring into the kingdom the sons of God. Because when all the sons of God have been brought into the kingdom, creation will be renewed. Unbelieving, radical environmentalists and even well-meaning, thoughtful people who genuinely believe our earth is in danger have minimized and forgotten one major fact. They won't be on this earth. They're going to die. And that's their biggest problem. And they'll say, but we have to save the planet for our children. Your children are going to die. They won't be on this planet. We have to save the planet for our grandchildren. Your grandchildren are going to die. They're not going to be on this planet. What about future generations? How many of them are still alive right now? Zero. In the thousands of years, 105 billion people total that have lived, every single one of them have died. Except for one. Jesus couldn't stay in the grave because he's God. You see, the problem is not global warming. The problem is sin. And even if we could supposedly save the planet, they're not going to be on it anyway. But the creation, as it were, waits. Not for a government program. Not even for well-meaning people to try to be good stewards of the earth, but for the consummation of redemptive history Because only when sin is finally eradicated will decay and death and catastrophe be eradicated as well. You see, all the people who say they want to save the planet, if they don't come to faith in Christ, they will be in the flames of hell for all eternity. Hell is a place which will laugh at our paltry fears of global warming. The only way to avoid the true and hottest sentence of hell is to have your sins forgiven by receiving Christ as your Savior And being one of the sons of God who are presented to the Lord as clean and forgiven. So God's creation gives us total peace. God's character gives us total peace. God's curse gives us total peace. But the key phrase back in Genesis 8.22, while the earth remains, 
is important because while God will preserve the earth until his redemptive plan is done, and while he'll never again flood the earth, and he was very specific with water, he has made another promise. And here's our fourth truth. We'll call this one God's conclusion. God's conclusion. Turn with me near the end of the Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us God's conclusion. And if I could use a piece of bad grammar for a moment. Global warming ain't seen nothing yet. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. Right before 1 John. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He says that all should reach repentance, meaning all that God has set apart for salvation. Ephesians 1. It can't be speaking of all people. This must be speaking of the elect. This is speaking of the completion of the redemptive plan of God. This includes the church age. This includes the rapture of the church. This includes the the great tribulation time in which a whole new crop of believers will be brought into the kingdom. This includes the return of Christ and his reign for a thousand years. This includes the putting down of Satan's final rebellion at the end of that time. What happens then? Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now we're going to slow down to a snail's pace here for a moment. The traditional interpretation of Second Peter 3.10 and it's a very, very strong tradition and it's a strong enough tradition that I believe it's influenced Bible translation practices about this event The traditional interpretation is that this is the complete annihilation and destruction of all material things and a remaking of the heavens and the earth from scratch, uh, ex nihilo, out of nothing, uh, creation, just like Genesis 1. That's the the traditional interpretation. And that does seem to be corroborated elsewhere in Scripture. Luke 21, 33, Jesus himself said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Here in 2 Peter 3.10, the heavenly bodies are burned up. They're more dissolved. They're dissolved. The the more traditional English translation at the end of verse 10 says the works that are done on it will be burned up rather than exposed. Now, I want to be very clear that the English Bible you hold in your hand is trustworthy. The ESV is a great translation. It's easy to read. It's accurate. There are some passages which would warrant a little bit more careful attention to detail. Because the important features are easily ascertained here in English. Old earth, old heaven is not going to stay the same. It's going to be part of the day of the Lord. That is very clear from our English Bible. But the question at hand here is, what is the nature of the replacement of the old heaven and old earth? This is important because it has implications for the new heaven and the new earth. The main debate here is that, is this speaking of complete annihilation Or is it speaking of refinement, 
of creation. The purging of sin and impurity like one melts down gold and silver and cleans the dross from the top of the liquid metal and then remakes it using the same gold and silver. Which one is it? Well, let's examine some key words to make a determination and we have to get a little technical, so just stay with me for a moment. In verse 10, when it uses the phrase that the heavens will pass away, this is a Greek word used 29 times in the New Testament and it doesn't exclusively mean to be annihilated or to be destroyed utterly. It's, it's actually kind of a generalized word. It can speak of a path. In Matthew 8.28, the same word is used to say that two demon-possessed men were so fierce that no one could pass that way. It speaks of the end of trouble. Uh, before his arrest, Jesus prayed that if it were possible that this hour, this trial might pass from him. Same word. It can speak of the end of an era. Matthew 24, 34, Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In context, we're living in a certain era, and I've told you these things will happen in this era. How about this one? Verse 10, the the heavenly bodies of verse 10. The traditional translation very often is the elements of, will pass away. This is a very general word, the traditional translation, the elements. Oh, this preaches so well. God is going to melt down the elements. There's going to be nuclear fission, ionization, and and annihilation. It even sounds good when you preach it. The problem is, is that the chemical periodic table of elements was formulated and defined in 1894. Peter's original readers would not be thinking about the periodic table of elements. The ESV gives the best rendering, the heavenly bodies. And this makes sense. What are the heavenly bodies? Everything between the heavens and the earth. The day of the Lord will come to the heavens and the earth and everything in between. That's what that's saying. Verse 10, when it says that the heavenly bodies will be burned up, this is only used in the New Testament here in verse 10 and in verse 12. In verse 12, it says, melt as they burn, same word. This translation implies other destruction. But this word doesn't demand other destruction. Much more precisely, it means to suffer in the heat or to be subjected to intense heat. It doesn't say to be destroyed by the heat. In fact, this is a Greek word that we get our word cauterize. When you cauterize a patient's wound with intense heat to burn the infection and impurities, it doesn't mean you set the entire patient on fire. You cauterize the infection. And at the end of verse 10, the works that are done will be exposed. The King James Version says, shall be burned up. That's translated from a Greek manuscript known as the Textus Receptus. It's a good manuscript, but like the other thousands of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament we have, it has some issues. And through modern textual criticism, that is, the careful comparison with older and more reliable manuscripts, is pretty much universally agreed that the Greek word in the Textus Receptus is incorrect, and the word now in the United Bible Society's fourth edition of the Greek New Testament is much more the accurate reading. And the ESV gets it exactly right. It's a word which means to be found or to be exposed. This is very interesting. Because the New American Standard and the New King James Version, the editors know that that's the preferred reading, but they continue using the more traditional translation of being burned up. Because it's not what the word says, it's what tradition is. But it's more accurately the idea of exposing, of 
cleansing, cleansing the surface of something. It's the same word used in metallurgy of purifying metal through fire so that all the impurities go to the top. It's exactly the same idea of 1 Corinthians 3 of the purging by fire of all the deeds that you've done as a believer so that only the righteous deeds are left. It's not speaking of your destruction. It's speaking of leaving behind of all the impure elements. In verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This word new doesn't mean brand new without reference to something that's older. It means new in the sense that the old is obsolete. It's new in quality. It's new in superiority. And do we have an example that proves that that is God's pattern? We do. It's your resurrection. Your resurrection is very clearly your old body being made new, not your old body being decimated, never to be seen again. Your old body will pass away. What is the Lord going to do with it? He's going to resurrect it, not burn it forever. You will look like you and you will be you. And so it seems that faulty assumptions about Peter's eschatology here have influenced the rendering and the translation of this passage at times, operating under the assumption of complete annihilation. This does not fit with biblical eschatology that speaks of not annihilation, but redemption and renewal. The idea of cosmic annihilation belongs going all the way back to the second century heresy called Gnosticism which held that all material things would be annihilated to make way for that which is good, the spiritual things. Now, remember the imagery from Romans 9, Romans 8, 19 through 22, that creation itself is personified. What do we know about creation from back in Romans 8? That creation is not to blame for sin and decay. Mankind is. Creation will be set free from bondage to corruption. Creation will obtain the freedom that the children of God will enjoy. Creation is groaning for restoration. This is not the language of complete annihilation. This is the language of refinement and renewal and purging and cleansing and cleaning. If God were to annihilate the present creation then Satan wins because God was not able to redeem our planet from sin. God could destroy everything anytime he wants. If that was his solution, when would he have done that? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, boom, start over. But he didn't. His plan was not a plan of annihilation. His plan was a plan of redemption. In fact, Acts 3, 20 and 21 says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. This is very important because it helps us to understand that what we have to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth is a graspable reality that's similar to our current reality. It just needs to be refined and glorified. It will be our home, a place which has things that are familiar and lovely and physical and spiritual and glorious. Now, why is this important? Well, Peter himself tells us why it's important. Second Peter 3.11 Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, not annihilated, but melted down, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? 
In fact, a better translation here for dissolved is released or the bonds broken. The earth will be remade, remade into its originally intended form. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In other words, the knowledge that God is going to purge and purify creation should urge us to follow suit. To purge and purify sin in our own lives. That as believers in Christ, we continue to strive toward holiness, to be diligent to make holiness a priority, to be found without spot or blemish, to pursue the progressive sanctification. And we've said this before, at the rapture of the church, the moment that Christ comes to take you home, if you're still alive on this earth, do you really want to be bickering with somebody? Well, you said this, 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 and then Christ returns. Oh, well, forget about that. You don't want to be there. And at peace. Literally, in peace. Who wants to meet Christ face to face while you're in the middle of sin? How urgent is this? This is very urgent. Chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. What did those in Noah's day say? Oh, the flood has never happened. That's ridiculous. It won't happen now. What do people say today? We don't believe in God. That judgment you're talking about is never coming. The earth says differently, doesn't it? It's coming. God's perspective on time is very different. It might seem like a long way, but for the believer, it's imminent. For the believer in Christ, verse 11, verse 14 says, live as if you will meet Christ today. And for the unbeliever, the one who has not yet repented of sin, Should you be afraid of global warming? Absolutely. But not one, two, or three degrees difference. An eternity of flames. An eternity of judgment. And so what does verse 9 tell us? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. What does that say? Hurry. Hurry toward Jesus. Hurry toward the cross. Hurry toward redemption. Hurry toward forgiveness. Because the day of the Lord will come how? Like a thief. Well, now we're ready for the new heavens and new earth. What's that going to be like? I'd like to close our time together. and You don't have to turn to these passages. I just want to have Bible reading time to you. What will the new heaven and new earth be like? Genesis 2, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. In Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's no reason to think that some of the greatest hymns of our faith might not follow us into eternity. And I have to wonder if we'll sing a slightly different version of Babcock's hymn and say, now this is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. Now this is my father's world. You want to save the lost from global warming They must run to the cross. They must. Let's pray. Our Father, this is your world, but this is the sickened, waiting, on its tiptoes, looking for the revealing of the sons of God version. It's the version that today, because of the effects of the flood, the world after the flood, that today we're trying to avoid sunburns. It's the reason we have glaciers in frozen places on earth that are unlivable. It's the reason we have deserts and places on the earth that are sick and decayed. And yet you've left enough of the marvels and the beauties and the joys of nature to give us the hope that when you said, behold, I bring a new heaven and a new earth, that we look forward to that day, not just because of the glories of nature, but because of what it represents, a redeemed people living for all eternity in the perfect world, on the perfect earth, in perfect communion, worshiping our perfect Savior face to face. Lord, as we've seen from Revelation, or from Romans 8, rather, the, the solution to the groaning world is not environmental programs. The solution is the gospel. We will leave this world to be united with Christ and then to eventually be on the new earth in the new heavens. And we look forward to that. But Lord, we would pray for the privilege of bringing as many people with us as possible, of bringing the lost to faith in Christ. Let us be faithful to proclaim Christ such that when that glorious day arrives, we see the shining faces of many worshipers who previously lived in the shadow of their own sin, but now live in the light of Christ. We love you and thank you in his name. Amen.